Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Benia. On this episode, I'm very excited to bring the conversation I had with Nicholas Dames. Uh, Nicholas is the Theodore Kahn Professor of Humanities in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. He mostly teaches on 19th century fiction, uh, history and theory of the novel, history of reading, aesthetics of prose fiction, and many other uh, areas. He is the author of numerous books, uh, such as Amnestic Selves, Physiology of the Novel, and his latest book, The Chapter, Segmented History from Antiquity to the 21st Century, um, which is a fabulous book. I absolutely loved it. Uh, for any of my listeners that are really into reading and like to read and kind of bibliophiles, you will absolutely love this book, but there is something for everybody. Uh, in, in this conversation and in his book. Um, Nicholas has also had his um, pieces in The Atlantic, The Nation, the New York Times Book Review. Um, he was uh, the chair of the MLA's Division on Prose Fiction Executive Committee 2009 to 2010. From 2011 to 2014, he was chair of the Department of English and Comparative Literature. Um, so he is well-established in the field. Uh, he's absolutely brilliant and a very nice nice person and wonderful to talk to um we had just a, a really wonderful conversation i i was learning so many things from him and uh, just super relatable easy to talk to um, so we talk about his book the chapter which again i absolutely loved and we just we talk about the history of how books have chapters now that might sound kind of dry but it's actually quite engaging especially if you're a book lover we start by talking about how chapters have boundaries, right? Chapters are kind of constructed as boundaries, especially with time. Now we talk about what is a chapter? How do we define that? We talk about literacy form in the chapter. The chapter is temporal units or scenes. We talk about the first chapter in Tabula Bambina. We talk about capitulation, how Augustine uses this. We talk about how the chapter evolved with and through the history of the Bible. We talk about various forms of the Bible throughout different uh, centuries. Talk about the chapter in the 15th century, Locke's anti-chapter theory, Jane Austen and chapter word count and the significance, about Tolstoy and divisions and episodes, Dickens and Eliot's Middlemarch and diurnal time. We talk about the antique diminutive model, talk about in-betweenness, talk about chapter in film, such as in uh, Cleo from 5 to 7, and the future of the chapter, where that's going. Again, this was such a fantastic conversation. Um, I felt so fulfilled afterwards, uh, really having a better understanding, looking at how I read books a little bit differently. Um, and it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a piece of history that people wouldn't normally think to probably uh, consider, but I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely important. And, and Nicholas is, is quite brilliant. And so it's uh, a uh, great conversation and fantastic book. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at Converging Dialogues at Substack.com. Uh, you can subscribe, you can follow, you can like, you can contribute, you can share with your friends. I'm also on YouTube as well, all the places where you find podcasts. So I'm everywhere. And uh, make sure you get out there and buy his book, support him, and, uh, and support books everywhere. And uh, now I bring you Nicholas Dames. I'm here with Nicholas Dames. Uh, 
Nicholas, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to uh, talking with you. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you have written a, a fabulous book in the chapter, as it's called, A Segmented History from Antiquity to the 21st Century. Um, and it is all about the chapter, chapters that we have in books and how that came to be. Um, I really, really enjoyed this book. I thought it was absolutely fabulous, especially for your ideas of how we understand time um, and how we understand sequence and many of those themes. So we'll get all into it. But before we do, uh, just tell listeners a little bit uh, of who you are uh, professionally, academically, and what you're currently up to. Well, thanks, Xavier. That, thanks for the kind words. That was really nice to hear. Um, I'm a professor of literature at Columbia University and a literary critic who uh, writes for various public venues. Uh, I guess you could say my specialty or my field is really something like the history and theory of the novel. Uh, how the novel develops over time, what novels are. Can you speak of such a thing as the novel? Is, is it, uh, can you even use a general noun like that? Um, I'm also the co-editor-in-chief of Public Books, which is a website, a sort of online magazine of uh, arts and ideas that tries to bring uh, academic thinking to a broader public. Mm, no, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, I guess, how did you come into writing, I guess, this book. So, you know, it's, it's obviously uh, a, a fantastic topic. I think it's something that is important for us to kind of think about, you know, probably a little bit more than we usually do, as you talk about in various ways in the book. But how did you come to wanting to write, um, you know, kind of this history of how this came about? And was there ever a, a like a meta moment of like, well, I'm writing the next chapter in my book that's on the chapter. You ever have yeah, one of those yeah, moments as well? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I honestly, I can trace this back to a conversation I had with a friend mm. almost 20 years ago where he asked out of the blue, uh, this friend's not an, an academic, uh, but very well read and asked out of the blue, so why do novels have chapters? And, you know, there I was, I'd, at that point I had a PhD, I thought I, you know, knew a lot, and I had no answer to this question. I, I, I really hadn't the faintest idea why such things exist, where they came from, or even really what they do. I mean, you know, in all my coursework and research, this is just a question that had never arisen and didn't seem like it was a question that anybody was thinking about. And so I sort of filed it away. I thought, when I'm done with certain other things I was doing, when I have a little bit more leisure, I'm going to take that up. And mm. um, so that was really the, the starting point, but, the, you know, but it took a while. And the, the, I think maybe the more immediately inciting moment, and I, I mentioned this in my book, was actually you know, common, I think, to a lot of people who write books, was that I was, uh, you know, I was in therapy, and a therapist said at a particular moment, of my life, she said, in a way that I think was supposed to really be um, encouraging. She said, you know, you're starting a new chapter of your life. And I thought, wait, you're using a metaphor from my field. <laughs> and I understand how that metaphor works. I understand what it means. Mm -hmm. I think I understand what you're trying to do. But, but what, is the, what does it mean that you're using a metaphor from books? And, and I think specifically from novels, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to articulate this kind of experience about the feeling of time transitioning. And that was really, that was when I was like, I, I have to start writing about this. Mm. Now, 
you know, there is that irony, right, that I was going to be writing about the very thing that I was in some sense writing with mm-hmm. and, or writing in. You know, and it did, it did make me much more aware of the joints of the book and, and how all books are jointed or almost all books are, are jointed in this way. There was a moment when, you know, a couple editors said, well, maybe what you want to do is you want to write chapters in the style of the historical moments chapters that you're writing about and I, I had to explain I said well that would mean that when I'm writing about let's say chapters in medieval prose romance the chapter is going to be 600 words long so that's not going to work um, so it, it, it I never really pursued that full meta embrace of what I was mm-hmm. doing but it, it was in the back of my mind and, and it was um, in the back of my mind primarily it really helped me grasp one of the central ideas of the book really viscerally which is that there are no rules mm. for it i mean it, it is it's a bizarre whatever you want to call it form or mode uh because there there really are there's nothing codified about it and really almost never has been and yet you feel what's right about it mm. when a chapter is working how it should be shaped. Those things are, are, are come to you kind of osmotically. And that was really very apparent for me in writing the book. Mm. Yeah, that's, it's so interesting because as I was reading this, and I, I remember those bits that you talk about, I, I, was, I was thinking about this notion of, well, what, is it, what does it feel like when you have, you know, you finish one chapter in a book, especially in, in terms of a, of a novel? There's a you don't think about it. It is a kind of intuitive thing. And it's probably something we're used to at this point as, you know, since, since, you know, people have been reading since they were, you know, four or five years old, but something was, was said and now it's done. And what is next will build off of that. But there's this kind of, uh, bookends, if you will, of like the, and, and then I guess the question became, well, how do you know when to stop that? Or when do you put everything into this one chapter and how does it lead into something else? So, how do how do we understand chapters as a kind of metaphor of transition, change, and more importantly, as a division of time? You talk about chapter time, which we'll get to probably later, but how is these boundaries in time? Talk about what, what you mean there. So, I mean, maybe a good place to start with this would be, um, it's, a, it's a thing I don't really pursue for very long in the book, but I think is important. And, and particularly for Americans, we have this idiom, we talk about chapter books. Mm-hmm. And a chapter book is, you know, it's very simple. It's, it's a story, it's a prose story that's long enough to need chapters for children that are just being able to read with enough duration that there are going to be interruptions, right? The, the, that they're not reading in one sitting. And that marks a stage of maturity in your uh, education as a reader right? It means growing into a certain kind of immersion, but it also means learning about having experiences that get held in abeyance, right? It's a, it's a really kind of pivotal moment in the maturation, not just as a reader, but as, as, as someone who experiences time, knowing that something is going to stop, but will resume. Um, it's almost like the kind of temporal correlate to, to object persistence, knowing that just because you can't see something, it's still there, right? Just because an experience has stopped, it, it will resume, or it may, it may still be going on in a certain kind of way, right? Um, that's, that is one aspect of that 
metaphor, which is that it, these are pauses, right? These are not conclusions. These are not endings. These are pauses or brackets or spaces to have the experience go temporarily into abeyance. But the other thing about the chapter metaphor, and this is the kind of peculiar dynamic of it, is that it also mark it isn't just a pause it can also mark something like uh a fresh start right and I, I i remember you know this i didn't end up writing about in the book but one of my early moments of thinking about this was walking past uh i think it was a mobile phone store seeing a, a giant ad and the picture of the ad was a woman holding a child on a, on a sofa sitting there, um, presumably her child, right? And the woman had an expression on her face that looked um, as if she'd been through something emotionally scarring, but was now safe. Mm. And the, the lead, I mean, the, the sort of headline of the ad was starting a new chapter, right? Now, presumably the ad, what, what this ad was about was, a, you know, a woman who'd been in an abusive relationship, had been in, a, in an extremely perilous situation, but now would find some, found some sort of refuge, right? That, that sense of the chapter metaphor is, is about a, a solace, as mm. about leaving something behind, right? Really fundamentally, a, a real fundamental break. And that's the bizarre flexibility of that chapter metaphor is it can be just a pause, just a very fleeting interruption of something that's ongoing and something sharper. And it's always kind of, shuttling between those two possibilities, right? The, the chapter is a, a stronger break that might introduce an idea of, of hope or uh, promise change, but also a much more finely modulated break, which says that actually things will persist, that you'll pick up where you left off, um, that it's just a little breathing space, right? And, mm. it, and it, it, it has this ability to function as both for us. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's bringing up this this idea you introduce in the book of this chapters have this can have this feeling of constraint, but also this freedom of existing in between, which I thought was really interesting. Which again, yeah. you're you're playing around with this idea of of time, right? Of how we're understanding these boundaries and limits. And for us, for the most part, you know, time is always forward. But in a book, you can go backwards in time. But it's never the first time, if you will, if you're rereading a chapter or something like that. So I guess talk about these kind of constraints and these boundaries of freedom existing between and, and how that interacts with this idea of time there. So, yeah, I mean, the dialectic, I guess you could say, between constraint and freedom is really interesting and, and particularly complicated when it comes to the chapter, because I think two things are true about it. Uh, one of which is that there are no rules associated with it. It's not like a sonnet or a haiku. Um, there, there is no formal constraint around it, um, and it's completely uncodified. Now, I, I, I often say, like, there might be, I might, there might be a smoking gun out there that I haven't found, where somewhere in the archive there's a letter from an editor to a writer saying, "All right, here's what a chapter is. Here's how it works." I've actually never really found such a thing. So it's, it's uncodified. It seems totally amorphous. This sense that you can do what you want, but there is a kind of standard of appropriateness that governs it. And I, you know, this is something anybody who's not just written a book, but like a dissertation knows, right? You turn in a 120-page chapter, someone's gonna tell you, and it's not how this works, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you've got to cut this down. This is two, maybe three chapters. You know, how, here's how you rearrange it. Here's what I think the chapter is here. So there is a felt sense of appropriateness as if there's this kind of very vague unconscious norm that mm-hmm. coexists with the freedom that it, it gives you. So it's, you know, you, what is a chapter? It, it, it becomes a kind of very vague consensus of you know it when you see it. Um, now that does change over time. There's mutation to it over time that, that I've tried to detect, which is why my book goes, spans over 2,000 years, because it doesn't persist. And there is this kind of slow mutation. But I think the reason the mutation is slow is because it never gets codified. So you don't, it, it becomes hard to know when you're breaking the rule because the rule isn't there in an obvious way to be broken, right? The other dynamic here that I think is important is that um, it is both, or at the same time, a linguistic form, right? It is the unit of storytelling or, uh, or of exposition that you're offering. But it's also an aspect of page design. Right, it it isn't just a linguistic form. It involves questions of, uh, you know, really kind of pragmatic questions of does does a new chapter start a new page? How much white space is provided at the break? Is it titled? Is it not titled? Are there conventions about how it's going to get titled? Does the title appear in running heads? And those things are usually not in the control of a writer. So that strange mixture of a form that is visual. I mean, really exists as a kind of visual mark and uh, textual, I guess you could say, or linguistic, sort of makes it, tugs at the idea that it's something that's completely in your control or completely manipulable by a writer. You're, you're mm-hmm. always experiencing the chapter as a negotiation between what a writer is attempting to accomplish and, what, and how it looks on the page, mm-hmm. how it has been designed, and what the standards are, given moment, in a given genre for how such a thing is supposed to look because those also change very slowly and are susceptible to a lot of uh, senses of what is or isn't appropriate at a given moment. Yeah, you mentioned in the book this idea of form. So you, you kind of describe form in the Kantian sense, which you can describe if, mm-hmm. if you want for mm-hmm. context. Um, and then kind of what you're saying here, the chapter doesn't fit neatly, I guess, in literary form. Yeah. Um, so how do, how do we understand, I guess, literary form and, and the Kantian notion and, and how the chapter is kind of uh, amorphous to that? Yeah. So Kant, the Kantian idea of form would be something like a mediation between constraint, uh, or we say a, a rule, and freedom, uh, what you can do within the confines of that rule. On the surface, it seems like, well, okay, that might be describing what chapters are about. But in practice, I think it doesn't work well. And and most literary critics would say it doesn't match because on the one hand, uh, the rule scarcely exists. There's no sense that you you would know what the rule is that you're violating. And as a result, the freedom within seems a lot Less because, of course, you're also, you know, to the extent that there's freedom, you're also constantly butting up against these unspoken norms that are out of your control, right? Um, I don't, you know, as with any, I think almost any writer, I had no control over how my chapters looked when the book was put into, you know, into print, right? I, I, that was entirely the designer's uh, task. 
So you don't have an, you don't have freedom in the same way. You don't have constraint in the same way. And this is you know one of the interesting things for me starting this book was that most I'd, I suppose you could say novel theorists or literary theorists to the extent they ever think about chapters will say, well, that's not a form. It's just not, right? It's just a, it's an aspect of page design. It's a convention, um, but it's not a form because you don't have the same experience of work, of freedom within constraint that, mm-hmm. and then, you know, that, that Kant said form was. There are, there are forms, we can talk about them, you know, free and direct discourse, flashbacks, similes, metaphors, but the chapter isn't that. The chapter is just a thing that people do um, mm-hmm. when, they, you know, when they essentially put books together. I, uh, I suppose you could say my book's an argument for including the chapter as a weird kind of form. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work the way Kant thought form did, and it's, very, it's much slipperier, but it is something that we write within and have some consciousness of, even at the limits of our agency, at the limits of our ability to think about, to have control over uh, what it is we do, but it has meaning, I think, right? And and that meaning for me is primarily the way in which it sculpts the boundaries of time. Hmm. Yeah. So, in 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 that sense, then chapters are are seemingly there's these they're like you I think you use the term temporal units, right? Yeah. And that there's almost analogous to how we think of scenes in a film. Well, you you know you have a film, you're telling a story. But you have scenes, right? right? And you'll sometimes you'll have like hard cut. Sometimes you'll have you know different ways in which people you know they'll fade in or fade out. But um, in some ways, chapters are kind of existing in that way of these like captured moments of time, and much like scenes are. Because if you want to, like if if people look at, I mean, you could do this. You know, people look at this with chapters too. But like if you're reading a novel, and there's a lot of things that happen in one chapter uh, there's a big conversation or there's a big kind of moment and it's there and then you kind of need that like break and then you go to the next thing or whatever same thing i would well not mean that's the same thing but very similar in in films where it's like a lot of action or a lot of drama okay i need a break and then the scene is a kind of bridging of sorts and maybe chapters work that way how, how do how do chapters exist in in that regard of uh, kind of a no, um, different temporal units and much how we understand scenes from film. It's, it's a, I mean, I think it's a useful analogy. It's a complicated analogy because um, at moments you can think of a chapter as analogous to a scene in a film. At other moments you can think of chapters as closer to something like the, um, a continuous shot, right? Where the mm-hmm. boundary is actually the cut and not the end of the scene. Mm, nice. um, and it depends on the moment you're talking about. So let's, let's talk about three, or three different kinds of time units and how they do or don't line up. I mean, the chapter is one of them. Yeah. Second would be the scene, right? I did start this book thinking that, well, the, the commonest mode I'm going to find are going to be novels that were chapters equal scenes, more or less, mm. right? Turns out, I, and I was surprised by this turns out that that's actually very rare chapters Mm. and and there are certain authors that tend to be addicted to that mode henry james is very addicted to every chapter is a scene right and almost in a theatrical sense and usually ends with like a kind of curtain line and Mm -hmm. um but that's comparatively very very rare 
The other possibility is that a chapter represents a little bit more than a scene, something we might call an episode. That is a moment that's bound together, has a beginning and an end, may contain multiple scenes. There I found actually that the chapter is usually smaller than that in a lot of different historical moments. That for what we would think of as an episode, and that's a somewhat vague idea, but that the chapter tends to be in between something like an episode and a scene, which means it's its its own kind of time. Mm. The difference... I think this is, I mean, maybe the most pertinent difference is that both scenes and episodes exist as time units within the story world. That is that, let's say, the characters in a story are going to be conscious of the fact that um, they're in a scene, right? That this is a moment they're in, or that there's an episode, there's there's something that's concerning them and that's playing out with some sort of causality they may not be conscious in any way of a chapter, right? The chapter kind of comes from outside and, and cuts their experience in ways that they may not be able to reflect upon or have any, even have any awareness of, so that it's a version of time that, for most of the history of the novel, really just exists for the, whether you want to call it the author, the narrator, uh, whatever term you want to give it, and the reader, but over the heads of the characters almost. Every once in a while, there's an uncanny effect where, you know, in a certain style of novel, characters will be aware of existing in chapters. But that's a, that's a later development, and that's a kind of metafictional play with this. But it, it, it's a kind of time that exists between author and reader, I would mm-hmm. say. And often to kind of synchronize our time, the time of our reading, with the time of the story over and above the story world. Hmm. Well, I was thinking about this when, when, when I was reading the book of, again, another meta experience <laughs> <laughs> about this idea of reading and, and, and how chapters are or are not organized. So I'll give an example here. Um, when I read something like War and Peace, there's many chapters yep. there's many i mean there's like parts and sections and chapters and you know it's you know what is it 14 1500 pages depending on yeah. what version you have it's massive you need it broken up that way i would i would think but when i read something like my struggle by carl of nosgard which is it just there is no there, is there are no, no chapters yeah. it, it, and i remember the first time i read that i said well okay i how many I have a certain amount of time I'm going to sit here and read, and I usually read a couple hours a day. So I'm like, oh, about half an hour I can read. Let me see how many pages I can get to. I'm like, okay, there's no chapter here. Why is there no chapters here? And then I almost have this like anxiety. I'm like, well, where do I stop? And oh, okay, where's my bookmark? And and how am I going to? Where's the break? So yeah, because I can't I can't read a 400 page book in one sitting. And it was like, but then. I think that's obviously intentional maybe because it's like, that's the point. That's the idea. And so then it becomes this idea of, of, of scenes, right. Or there's a kind of rhythm there. So in, in, in your book, you talk about the, the chapter is this kind of intersection of two types of reading. You say continuous and immersive and informational and, and consultation. So, and you can use examples if you want, but talk about those two types of reading and how the chapter is, 
uh, helpful or, or not in, in kind of uh, structuring the way in, in the ways we, which we, uh, we read. Yeah. So the, the, the important thing about that, I mean, absolutely right that that's the, those are the two poles in, uh, that chapters address, one of which would be the, the discontinuous pole, right, where it's about leaving off, it's, but it's also about, it's about indexing, right? And the other is about a pause within a process that's kind of linear. The important thing about that distinction is that one of those modes comes before the other, but is gradually replaced by the other. And so that a chapter begins, really, uh, the origins of the chapter for quite a while is as a tool for discontinuous access, right? You break up the text and you label those units so that you can locate where you want to go when you're not reading continuously. So that, that the labels are indexed to a table, usually a table of contents or some kind of index. You look at the index, you say, that's where I want to go. I'm going to read that chapter. And then you have a way to find it. Um, what's important about that is that, it, that that discontinuous mode means chapters begin as ways of organizing informational textual genres. So mm. something like early encyclopedias, uh, handbooks, compilations of different kinds of knowledge. It, it's, not, its origins is not, are not at all in narrative genres. Over time, though, over a long stretch of time, there's a strange mutation that occurs in which that mode of indexing a text by segmenting it morphs into something that's inherited by narrative genres and then shifts its its role, its primary role, into being the technique of the pause, right? Sort of the bookmark function you were talking about, mm -hmm. saying, well, here's a place where the author has permitted me to stop. Mm -hmm. um, it's a natural place to stop because the author has indicated that I can, and that it takes off some of the pressure, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, pr the pressure of, you know, I suppose you could say, and Knausgaard is a great example of this, the pressure of the acknowledgement that the experience you're in cannot by its nature, be continuous, mm -hmm. right? You, you, you can't read all of a Knauskad volume. Well, maybe someone could read it in one sitting, but I, I'm not sure that's simply... I it's certainly Very <laughs> difficult. We all need, we need breaks, right? It's the distinct... Yeah. I mean, to me, that's one of the... It, it's something that is distinguishing about the novel as a form that isn't sufficiently taken into account. It is almost always an experience that needs to be broken up. It can't happen at once. To what extent does the novel acknowledge that? Permit that to happen. Fight against it in some way. In mm -hmm. Knausgaard, you're talking about somebody who is fighting against it, who would really like you to sit for hours and hours on end and lose track of time. I mean, there, but there's just facts that interfere with that, facts of human physiology, facts of everyday life that make that not possible. And the chapter does exist to kind of permit you a release. But that's, a, that's, that's the linear uh, purpose of the chapter, right, is to, is to produce a kind of rhythm of integrating the reading with your everyday life. There is, though, this older mode, which is about permitting you to dip in at targeted moments and telling you how to get there. And it's that shift between one to the other that fascinated me and kind of organizes the book, but it's not a clean shift, right? And those two things are always kind of, there's always a capacity to move back and forth between them or to try to combine them in some way. I mean, early novels had tables of contents, right? Tables of contents. Now that's bizarre because no one is going to read, uh, say, you know, Henry Fielding's Tom Jones by looking at the table of contents and saying, all right, you know, I'm going to start at chapter 12. Um, but they, they, they persist. Over time, tables of contents in novels start to vanish, right? So mm -hmm. they don't, 
they don't really exist anymore. Or if they do, it's a kind of playful, ironic gesture. Mm. Um, but that that mixture is is it's you know it's always there. There's always the slight ability of the chapter to sort of reactivate its older existence as something that is pegged toward an indexical function. Mm. Yeah, it, it it really is fascinating to think about. I guess the the big takeaway for me from the the first part of the book was this idea of chapter time of time uh, itself and how we're doing things and and what then the kind of phenomenology of it is for us as the reader interacting (laughs) you know there's a weird thing that happens where it's like you know when i read uh ulysses right you know that author has been dead for a long time but I'm still reading his words, you know, in my time and how I'm doing it. And there's a there's a kind of there's an, a a living aspect to it. And I don't know the chapter for me just kind of the idea of time makes it just comes alive a little bit more for me. I'm not sure why, but it's interesting to see how this is organized, how this is structured, how scenes are created or or made. Uh, with the intention of somebody, you know, the same with, with, you know, with uh, my struggle, you know, yeah. it's this big, you know, six, you know, volume, basically it's one thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's also very interesting as well to, to this pushing. I think that that's, it's just interesting how the, the experience of doing that and reading that, and then you can do it again and again and again, yeah. and it all will be a little different, I think is something quite interesting in terms of for a while we had oral tradition and now we have so much of things are written but we're still trying to use a kind of um kind of skeleton or shelf of sorts a kind of framework of how we want a story to be heard or how we want a reader i guess you should say a reader to to uh to grasp this and the difference and nuance there, right. the, the the experience of it was just yeah. interesting in, in reading the first part of the book. Yeah, because the chapter, I think what you're registering there is a chapter is always a form of implicit communication directly from yeah yeah whatever, again, whatever name you want to call it, author, narrator, um, to you, because it is speaking to your temporal framework. It's not being mediated through the temporal framework or only partially mediated through the temporal framework of the story. It's saying to you often, okay, you can stop now. Take a breath. And that, so that does provide a sense of immediacy. And, and, you know, that's, we're talking about, you were talking about Ulysses. There it's more implicit. But when you do go back to the 18th century, it's often very explicit, right? At the ends Mm -hmm. of chapters, and uh, the narrative voice will say, well, we have to leave off. We've been at this long enough. Um, in the next chapter, this might occur. Bear with us, you know, or or something like that. It it becomes a it's an occasion for direct communication mm-hmm. and reestablishing a or a communicative relation that isn't mediated through the story and that can give it a real strong feeling of immediacy, right? Because it is it is really your time that mm-hmm. is being sculpted there. Yeah, maybe we'll get to it at the maybe towards the end of uh, some of the the topics here. But this idea of I don't think you talk about it directly in the book. But one thing I was thinking about towards the end was this idea of how does that get captured or or lost? I would probably say most of the time 
when people do adaptations to film. So yeah. we're seeing a visual component and we do have actual scenes yeah. and what does that look like? So maybe, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. But, um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about the history. So Tabla uh, Bambina, mm -hmm. is this, is this the first time we see a chapter in written form, was there precursors to this or different progenitors? How do we understand the first, if you will? I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say, you know, it's one of those things where it's the first that I came across. Hmm. Again, it's like there, there might be another one out there. There might be another one waiting to be unearthed still. But what it is, is a tablet from the second century BCE. Um, apparently, it was meant to stand in a Roman forum in the region of Urbino. Um, and it was simply, as, as these monuments often were, it's to promulgate a new law. It's the public proclamation of a new law. What's distinctive about it, I mean, and most people who have written about this tablet want to write about the law, which is in its own way very significant, and, you know, but I'm not a legal scholar, it's not my concern. The other thing that's interesting about it is it seems to be the first text that we have that is visibly articulated into these units that are called, we can think of as chapters. Now, what they don't look anything like uh, contemporary chapters. It's continuous text, um, but the text is broken up with subheadings. And the subheadings are bracketed off by like a space, uh, each of maybe a few characters on either side. And those subheadings actually do translated look a lot like chapter titles will look for centuries and centuries. Mm. Now, that says something, right? As early as the second century BCE, there's an attempt to orient the eye in patches of text to subunits. So this, this seems to have been already around. Um, it says also something about the history of the chapter, which is that what starts the chapter is the label, right? It's, mm. it's, the, it's the heading, it's the insertion of a heading that starts us off in the direction of uh, a kind of unit that we can call a chapter. And that unit is always a subunit, right? Mm. So that's, uh, that's as early as, as I was able to go. You know, it's uh, as far as this element of graphic interruption and, mm. and the organization of information in a way that makes it easier to comprehend and kind of guides the eye through a text. Yeah, it's interesting because in, in this bit of things you're talking about, yes, there's analytical functions, but there is a strong visual right. function here, right. which is really interesting. Again, we, we, I mean, again, when I read a novel and there's chapters in it, I don't really think about that. But if you just have text, yeah. <laughs> you need yeah. something for your eyes yeah. to not get like overwhelmed. Yeah. So it's interesting how early this early idea of of you know subheadings or if you will chapters was a type of visual yeah. kind of aid and, and even even still like you were saying earlier you know once a book gets to press and you have an editor and you have all these things chapters are you know there's a there's a way in which there's a, they're organized and constructed which so that still does carry on today obviously different but interesting how there's a I mean reading is a visual thing right. so right. <laughs> Um, that's interesting though, the visual. And, and what's odd about, you know, you could say something almost, this wouldn't be quite right, but you could say the chapters in that sense pre-exist words because that mm -hmm. text 
didn't yet involve word separation. I mean, word separation is not a common uh, practice in ancient literacy in the Mediterranean for centuries to come. So the tablet doesn't separate words, but it does separate chapters, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the first kind of aeration you can detect in the visual appearance of text. Mm. Yeah, that's super interesting. So you mentioned this concept of capitulation uh, as yeah. a way of division. Um, and you talk about how uh, Augustine uh, has his own form of this as well. So kind of tell us what is, what is capitulation in the sense that you're meaning in terms of ways of dividing things, and then how did uh, Augustine do his, do his own there and, and the connection with reading? Right. So I use this word capitulation. What it means is it's an ancient form of reading and studying. Imagine a world in which most texts do not come pre-segmented into units of chapters. What your job is as a reader, if you're really trying to understand that text, is to provide those units yourself, right? Mark them off and explain in some way to yourself or to other readers of the text by writing them in the margins why you've marked these units off as such. So it is a way of, the, it's the reader's job to segment the text. Now that can be both purely notional in the sense that that can be just something you've privately done to a text as you read through it, or it can take real public form, which is you can become essentially what we would now call a kind of textual editor. You can rewrite that text with the units marked. You can introduce units into the text to enforce your own reading of how that thing should be organized. And that mode of reading, that mode of what scholastic, academic, or serious reading lasts for centuries in the ancient world. It is the way in which you show that you've mastered a text is by segmenting it and understanding where those segments should fall and why they fall where they do. Um, that's, that's something that was your labor, right? And then produced a world in which those segmented texts you know, actually sometimes recopied with the segments included, replace the originals, right? So for centuries, chapters are not, or only very rarely produced by the original author of texts, mm. right? There are subsequent editions inserted by editors that have come down to us. And, you know, when, uh, in the Renaissance, when, particularly in the early days of print, when, uh, editors then began to realize this, began to realize that chapters are actually kind of belated incrustations on what are the original pristine versions that we don't have anymore. There was an attempt often to get rid of them, hmm. to really eliminate them because they were inauthentic, they were belated. What, what would it look, be like to experience this text without those things? It's an interesting thought experiment that often happened, mm -hmm. in the, particularly in the you know, 16th century. But it misses something, which is how fundamental capitulation was to reading in the ancient world. That if, even if those things weren't there, which they wouldn't have been in the original form, your job was to produce them. Now, Augustine, I put forward as an example of the kind of notional chaptering of the text, right? Whereas what you're doing is you are locating in a text the moment that marks a change. Now, the, the moment I, I talk about in my book is the famous moment of Augustine's conversion. Right, and it's a it's a you know vividly narrated moment where he's in the throes of a spiritual crisis, 
um, that that crisis being that he wants to start a new life as a Christian, but feels barred from doing so because of the the desires of his body, the habits that he's built up over what at that point was over 30 years of life. And he's like thrashing about trying to figure out how this change is going to occur when he hears this voice, this disembodied voice coming from essentially a nearby garden and its children at play or playing some sort of game. He doesn't ever explain what that game might have been um, in which they are chanting uh, in Latin tole lege, which means take it and read. And he interprets that as a message to him. So he picks up a, he picks up a book, which was lying in the garden, in his garden. Um, we don't really know what this book contained other than it probably contains um, some of what became the Christian epistles. He opens it at random and sticks his finger in it and says, whatever this, wherever my finger lands, this was an ancient, uh, an ancient practice of fortune telling called bibliomancy, usually applied to Virgil and not to Christian scripture, but he sticks his finger on it and there's a passage that tells him um, leave off the lusts of the body. It's, it's from Romans. I forget uh, where in Romans, but it's from Romans. And he says, that's it. It was as if a, a light goes on and that message came to him directly. Now, this is a well-known moment. It's the climactic moment of the confessions. For me, what was interesting is when he says, I put my finger on a blank, he, he uses the word capita, he uses uh, two different conjugations of the same word, capita and capitulum, the Latin words for chapter. Chapter doesn't, in, in Latin antiquity, doesn't have to mean a formally marked out unit of text. It can mean mm. a, something we would now call it a passage, but mm. something that you've marked out, that you've said, this is for me a unit. Mm. This thing stands out and performs a certain function for me. That's what he does. And, you know, most people, when they read that moment in the Confessions, they think, well, this is a bizarre way to proceed, right? Or it's, it's bizarrely uh, not particularly Christian, right? It goes back to ways of handling the Aeneid and something. But in fact, what he's doing is just a much a spontaneous version of capitulation. He's, mm. he's saying, I'm, gonna, I'm looking for the unit. I'm looking for the unit that matters to me. And he finds it. He finds it in a, he would say, in a foreordained way. You could say in an accidental way. But nonetheless, you know, he mm. puts his finger on it. And that is how you read. Mm. Uh, that was, it's a good model for how you read before texts come pre-articulated. It's super interesting about how much, uh, I guess, autonomy, I guess, the reader had in, 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 in kind of marketing all of these different ways of how they want to see. You know, it yeah. does become very personal in some ways. Yeah, yeah. So you spend, as, as I was, before I even opened this book, I said there has to be a long discussion about the Bible. Of course, it's, you know, it's... A, right. To me, you right. could be the biggest atheist <laughs> in the world. You still have to respect the Bible as um, tremendous for so many different reasons. So, um, you know, I think that people should understand that. Um, you know, well, I don't. I, you're, you're not doing uh, theology here, Nicholas. No, so. no, <laughs> not, not you're really. not doing no, theology. No, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, so, but I, I do think it's interesting that the Bible, in one regard, 
absolutely should be treated as a literary text that has a lot of value for obviously literary criticism, but also for um, various aspects that, that you cover in the book. So, you know, that's kind of the lens here, which I think is super important. Um, full disclosure, you know, there was a long time ago, I, I was in a seminary and uh, we learned about literary genre, mm-hmm. uh, poetry, narrative, epistles, apocalyptic, you know, et cetera, prophetic. And, you know, language and syntax and grammar and um, all of these things, which are super, super important because uh, I, I'm, I'm avoiding the kind of uh, my, my hobby horse here. But, um, you know, <laughs> the Bible, you can get a lot of great wisdom from it. You can get a lot of wonderful uh, application for your life, et cetera. For religious people, it's super important. It is the words of God given to man, et cetera. The way in which the Bible is organized is very important. It's very important to know, and that is helpful for interpretation, that's helpful for application, to know why is Genesis written in narrative form? Why is you know, Malachi written in prophetic form? Why are the Psalms poetic? You know, why are the epistles the way they are as letters to these churches? There's something to that. So and anyways, the the thing with that, yeah. that you put here in the book is um, how the chapter really becomes important for scripture. So maybe, and there's all these different things here, the different canons, the codex, uh, the different versions. So um, I'll give you as much runway here since it's so, <laughs> yeah. it's so much. There's a history here. It's but kind of tell us story. how it, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's tremendous how it kind of originates and then how we get it to you know, whichever English translation you have today, there's been so many waves. And so I think most people will know for much of this, it was oral tradition. Then for a large part of it, it was written down, but there wasn't chapters and verses. Even old Hebrew didn't have punctuation. Uh, so, you know, it, there's all these difference of, okay, then how do we have the gospel of John? And then we have, you know, the gospel of, uh, uh, of Mark, and then how do we have First and Second Corinthians, and right. and then chapters right. and verses, right. all these things. So tell us right. the the story here. About yeah, this. I mean the the central idea, I guess, that it seems important to all of this is that you know none of those texts, and uh, mostly in my book, I'm talking about uh, the Gospels, right? So I'm talking primarily mm-hmm. about the New Testament, but none of the texts in what now makes up the composite Bible were written in chapters, right? So chapters are late. Uh, insertions into the text. The second thing about that, of course, is, and I think this is the more surprising bit, is how many different ways there were to chapter those texts. Mm. The chapters we now have in a Bible are date to a, the beginning of the 13th century, more or less, right? So there, that was the moment when the chapters at least got more or less fixed in place. But there is this consciousness that continually dogs uh, publications of the Bible about the belatedness of that, mm-hmm. and therefore, I guess you know, word you can use the inauthenticity of it. Mm-hmm. That those mm-hmm. th- those things don't—they're purely human constructs, yeah. Um, and their purpose varied depending on the system. So I walk the rear through a few of those models from about the 4th century to the 13th to to show how they, these developed and what the purposes might have been 
that they serve, because I, I guess I could say it's not a theological treatment, because I, I do want to make the claim that a lot of the purposes they served were not theological, right? They yeah. were often very, very practical. Mm-hmm. Um, they're different, different, different ways of indexing the text. So, um, you know, I think that's the, the first thing is the accidental quality of it in some way, or the, at least the inauthentic quality of mm. it. And um, it starts, though, I mean, I think you could say in a particular moment, and that would be roughly the early fourth century in modern day Palestine, in cities like Caesarea and so forth, where you have people coming to grips with the idea of this body of texts that have been assembled, both the Gospels and the Epistles, need some form of indexing. And how are you going to do that? And the immediate problem, the the inciting problem, was the Gospels, because you had four versions, more than that, of course, but four canonical versions that tell the same story in slightly different ways. How do you, can you produce an indexical system that allows you to look at a passage in one gospel and identify where that where an analogous passage exists in the others mm-hmm. so what evolved was a what had what was a really really influential um, system lasted well into the middle ages called the eusebian canons um probably linked to at least the workshop of if not the actual leadership of the um, bishop eusebius it's a brilliant System and I, I won't go into I won't try to describe it in too much detail. But what it does is it it divides every gospel into as small a unit as possible, so almost mm-hmm. like atoms of narrative, sometimes just a sentence mm-hmm. or two, and provides it with a Greek numeral. But then next to that Greek numeral is going to be a Latin numeral from one to ten, and that's a code. So uh, for instance, if I let's see if I have this right, um, if it's Roman numeral one, that means that that passage exists in all four Gospels. Mm. If it's Roman numeral two, it means that that passage exists just in the synoptic Gospels, just in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm-hmm. Roman numeral three means, uh, I think it's something like Matthew, Luke, and John, right? But it, it, that numeral will, it will give you a kind of index to the others, right? Now, mm. that's a brilliant solution. And yeah. well into the Middle Ages, you can find that table in mm. most uh, complete Bibles, right? My interest there, though, is that it, it is the first step he takes, which is he has to divide up the text into these small units. So, for instance, uh, you know, I, I don't have the figure off the top of my head, but something like the Gospel of Matthew is divided up into more than 300 units, mm. right? Wow. That's the first act of what you might call kind of capitulation. Mm. Now, its purpose is purely comparative. It's purely to say, well, we're going to locate, the, we're going to cross-reference these texts. But what happens when you then start to use that impulse to divide the text like that, but now don't feel the need to use that as a cross-reference, but instead think of it as a way to organize a linear reading through a gospel, then you have something like early chapters. Hmm. And there are different systems, right? Sometimes those systems, only, we only have one example of it. Right? A given text will divide up the gospels in a particular way. Sometimes those systems have a tradition to them that lasts for 100 and 200 years or something like that in a certain region. Um, So, and they all do it differently. There is, however, a trend you can detect 
which I think is one of those recurrent features in the history of the chapter in any genre, which is that over time, very slowly, the size of those chapters, is, you know, how many words, the unaveraged chapter has gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and the chapters themselves gets, you know, uh, the number of chapters gets smaller and smaller. So the early capitulations of uh, the Christian Gospels will divide them into something that anywhere from 50 to 100 chapters, pick up a, a modern Bible, and it's really around like 20, 25. Mm-hmm. Right. So they, they get bigger. More and more stuff gets packed into different chapters. Um, that has an effect we can talk about. But I, I think that the thing to observe here, and it's a thing that uh, introductions to Bibles consistently point out up until about the 19th century, often in very pained tones, is these are, these are often really bad. They're really clumsy. They're weird, right? Even the current chapters are sometimes very bizarre. And, and, and uh, for instance, I think it's, it's John 9 starts in the middle of a sentence. Um, yeah. You know, uh, Mark, is it Mark 9? I, I think it might be, um, starts with one sentence that is the conclusion of a dialogue from the previous chapter. And then the mm-hmm. next sentence, which is, you know, verse 2, Says, and then they left to go, you know, then Jesus left to go somewhere else. And, well, why couldn't you have moved it one, you know, they're, they're bizarre that way. And, and, and it's often even more bizarre than that. Mm-hmm. So the usual temptation there, and it's one that most biblical letters take through the 18th century, is to say, well, these are just really awful. They're bad. But we have to keep them because tradition sanctions them. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise a whole citational tradition hangs on their existence so we we have to keep them but we're just going to flag for you that they're stupid right or that this is they're badly done or who knows how they became corrupted um i want to flip that around a little bit and say that it's true they're bizarre choices in many cases but the bizarre choices actually have a logic to them Mm. which is different than a logic that we might want to bring to the idea of a chapter that logic often is, as I said, not particularly uh, theologically oriented. There's always been an attempt to read these chapter systems as if they have a theological meaning. None of them convinces me. Um, because I think that the needs of a capitulator were often extremely non-theological. One of them would be, and this I, yeah, I mentioned, I think is very important for the contemporary system, the, the early 13th century system we still have which is that chapters should be more or less the same size. Mm. That there should be a uniformity to their size. Not rigid, but um, you know, vaguely uniform. Mm. Now, what that's going to mean is you're going to end up chopping up the text in some odd places. Right? Yeah. You, it's not necessarily going to make sense in the narrative where you leave it off. Um, but that, that uniformity exists for a reason, which is so that you have roughly, a, you know, exists for sort of citational uniformity, right? Uh, you know that um, there have been other attempts to explain this. One attempt would be, well, you the chapters the chapter size is to is liturgical purpose, right? It's to find a passage of text that's more or less the right size to read aloud liturgically. That may or may I mean that there might be some validity to that, right? But what I do notice is an increasing development of, of standardization of size over time. The the gospels specifically, I think, are. Between twenty-ish to like twenty-five, right? So Matthew's twenty-eight yeah, chapters. Right around there. Mark is sixteen, the shortest. Luke is 
21, I think. And then yeah. John is 21, something like that. It's right. around there. Right, yeah. right, right. But if you, again, if you go back to the, to the 4th century, the 7th century, I mean, one of our earliest uh, codices, Codex Vaticanus, um, Matthew has 170 chapters. Um, so and then the later that. one, Codex Alangus and Trinus, 68, right? So yeah. um, way, the way I want to think about it is what's at stake in the size is the question of what counts as a significant unit or what in the text counts as a significant unit. And the mm-hmm. irony of this, right, is that some of these chapter reading systems do try to identify scenes. They yeah. do, you know. But the one we now have, the one, you know, the 13th century version that took over, doesn't. Um, where it tends to lock onto actually is identifying discrete days, which aren't scenes often. Often a lot of different things happen mm-hmm. in a single day, mm-hmm. or shifts of location, mm-hmm. which may mm-hmm. or may not, we want, might may or may not want to see a significant, right? Uh, but th- I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the parables in particular words, you yeah. Know, and then and then Jesus went down to Galilee and you know whatever, and and then he's in Samaria, and then right. he's you know it's all right. these. I, I could definitely see right, that, yeah. right, right. I mean, those were decisions taken, I think, not with the goal in mind of shaping a coherent narrative unit, but of finding a reasonably appropriate place where you can identify a break that's going to be of a consistent size with the other breaks. Um. And as I said, you know, there were a lot of ideas in the 18th century about throwing these things out and redoing it or eliminating chapters entirely. Um, trying to understand what would happen. How would your experience of scripture change if you didn't have these weird dividing marks? It just never caught on, right? And that's another one of these dynamics that plays out in the history of the chapter, which is that their f- chapters are felt to be theoretically indefensible. Like they shouldn't exist, and when they do exist, they're they're clumsy, but also totally indispensable. You can't get rid of them. You need them to scaffold your experience in some way. You need them for citation. You need them for to permit rest. You need them to organize reading, or your reading life. Right? And it was recommended for centuries, particularly in you know in Protestant countries, read a chapter of the Bible every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that bind between feeling that these are not divinely sanctioned very clumsy human things and uh, and yet at the same time completely indispensable to us runs mm-hmm. throughout this whole history mm-hmm. yeah i think that's super important you you mentioned already the codex alexandrinus yeah. uh, system yeah so we, we get from one system to this system and then we get the the paris bible it's just kind of just fill in the gaps there of how we had one version for a while and then we had another one and then how we get to kind of yeah. Current day. I mean, you've been talking yeah. a little bit about it, but just more yeah. of the, the kind of linear aspect. Yeah, let me, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one example of it and show you how, like, it, that changes in the way it's chaptered over something like a thousand years. Um, there's an episode in all the synoptics in which a synagogue leader named Jairus uh, comes to Jesus saying, my daughter is, is deathly ill. Can you, mm-hmm. can you heal her? He agrees. And as, he's, as, as he and his followers are heading off to to find the girl, he stops, feeling that as as he says something, something like, "My power has gone from me." And that's because a woman, yeah. known as the bleeding woman, we're told she's had a flow cloak. of blood, right, flow of blood for twelve years, has touched his cloak surreptitiously, mm-hmm. in the in the hopes that that would heal her. He turns around, locates who this woman was, 
she apologizes, right? But he says, your faith has healed you. And then he proceeds to go to the synagogue leader's daughter and tells her, you know, she's not dead but sleeping. Arise, little girl. And she does. Now, in the earliest segmentations, that's three or more units, right? In Codex Alexandrinus, it's two. So it's one starts when the synagogue leader comes to Jesus, and the other starts when the bleeding woman touches his garment. Now, what seems to be the logic there is every time a new person enters the narrative, there's a break. Um, now, there's no break between the end of the little inset moment with the bleeding woman and the going to the synagogue leader, right? Because there's no new person that comes in. So that's two unit. Uh, late, or sorry, early Middle Ages, eighth or ninth century, the Codex Amiatinus now organizes it into one chapter. So that understands it as a continuous action that's interrupted in the middle. Mm -hmm. Our version puts it in what's now, I think, the fifth chapter of Mark, for instance, okay. where it's, it's now set within a much bigger chapter mm -hmm. that is set in a particular place. As if to say, in, in chapter 5 of Mark, you're learning about all the different things that happen in this place. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Those are all different logics. Um, yeah. Those are all different ways of thinking about whether that's a coherent experience, uh, whether it's a coherent experience that's interrupted, whether it's braided experiences, or whether it's actually just a kind of chronicle of what happens at a given, at a given location. Well, it's a different way of reading it. Yeah. Completely very much different. So. Very much completely so. Completely different right. way of reading it, which, right. I mean, I don't know if it has substantial impact, but it definitely has impact of yeah. how you remember the story or yep. what it you know, does for yep. you spiritually. How you understand it's uh, even at, at the literary level, how you understand yeah. it. I yeah. mean, yeah. what do you do, for instance, the fact that the bleeding woman has been bleeding for 12 years and we're told that the young girl is 12 years old? Mm -hmm. Is that, is, I mean, you know, does that braid those two things together or are they accidentally? Is it a coincidence? I mean, those things, how seriously you take that is governed by whether you think it belongs to the same unit or not. Mm -hmm. And that just changes over time. Yeah, it's, it's so, so fascinating how knowing the different systems, and obviously we have the one. So the one we have currently is, I guess, 800 years old? Uh, more or less? Yeah, yeah, right. More, yeah, more almost exactly 800 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is interesting because I don't know when the first, you know, I guess Bible was written down. I mean, again, you have oral tradition for a while, but then you have hundreds of years where it's written down in different ways. Right. And then we have right. one now continues for, for about 800 years, right. which is, which is right. very, very fascinating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just tell us real quick, because I want to I get to the novel. Uh, you spend lots of time in the, the last third of the book about the novel and you go through. Uh, different novels in different time periods, so that, that I would be very interested to talk about some of those. But uh, you get this this one, I think, chapter on 15th century uh, mm -hmm. documents mm -hmm. and how this was a period more for uh, kind of de-informationalizing. So just tell us about this period and, and what was going on there with the chapter and what it was trying to do. This is the 1400s, so right around the printing press, no? Yeah, often at yeah. the very beginnings of the printing mm -hmm. press. And, and some, some of the examples I talk about are some very, very early printed books. Mm. That's a moment in which the chapter, chaptering, is still primarily an editorial 
function and not an authorial one. It is something that is the responsibility of, I mean, editor would be one way to put it, but in these cases, we're often talking about printers, right? The mm. printer's job is to segment the text. Um, one of my examples, and I think it's a, it's a good paradigm, is um, the, the Mort d'Arthur, the, the death of King Arthur, and the cycle of stories around King Arthur's court. Um, a text written by Sir Thomas Mallory, uh, but printed by William Caxton, the first English printer, right? And what Caxton does is he chapters it. He divides it, and he provides titles for those chapters. The titles are only located in a table of contents. They're not in as, you know, intertitles as you read. But, and he says in his preface, he says, I've divided it into, I've divided this text into, I think, 500 and, 500 and something chapters. Now, there are labels to these units, but the labels, you know, you have the apparatus of an informational organization of the text, but that apparatus now doesn't function well anymore. The, the labels don't really tell you much. And the division seems to be now not about organizing information, but about organizing your linear progress through the text in two ways. One of which is this very artful way in which he looks for moments that are almost like little infinitesimal pauses in the narrative to get you to stop almost at the height of certain kinds of tension. Um, it's almost like a kind of early cliffhanger mode he, he's thinking about. And it seems, if you study his mode, to provide at least on every set of facing pages some white space. So that's a visual uh, criteria, right? That to avoid what you were saying earlier about like that uninterrupted text block that really is kind of fatiguing to the eye, he doesn't want that. So he's trying to aerate as much as possible. And what this means is that given what could fit on a page in these early printing presses, his chapters are about 500, 600 words long. Mm. Um, so it's, an, it's, a, you know, it's a very frequently segmented text. But, and those are his criteria, right? Like a kind of textual aesthetic of trying to find these little moments. You know, there'll be a chapter break when a knight is about to open a door and behind the door is, an, is a foe, right? But just as the door opens, there'll be a chapter break. He loves those effects. But to also have that serve the purpose of kind of providing that white space aeration of the visual experience. None of that has anything to do with anymore the informational organization of it, of guiding a reader who wanted to locate a moment outside of the sequential reading experience. So you really do see at that moment in the, in the 15th century, in the you know, early print, let's say, or the transition from manuscript to print, this shift of how the chapter is understood to sculpting a continuous experience, um, addressing the eye, addressing this, uh, certain kinds of narrative niceties, ratcheting up tension often, and no longer being the kind of thing you would flip through. It's, it's interesting because it, it reminds me of what we, were, what we started with the history, the, the Tablo Bambino or whatever, where it has, there's a visual, component yeah, yeah, right you're yeah. putting it on on a, on a tablet or yeah, whatever and, yeah. and or it's on a tablet yeah. and here you have the next iteration of of that of, of, of something being printed um in a book you have to be mindful of how it visually appears and i and i can imagine 
again, this is outside the confines, I guess, of, of what the book is of sorts, but of what does it look like on a, on a screen? Yeah. Right. How, yeah. how does, how does a chapter look on a tablet? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> different kind of tablet, right. <laughs> different type right. Of tablet. right. An yeah. iPad yeah. or like most people read today on, on a phone, a big phone screen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also d- interesting in terms of how we're viewing at different periods throughout uh, time, um, how much the visual aspect of, of a chapter is important yeah. For, yeah. for certain things. I mean, not to jump too far ahead of ourselves, but mm-hmm. that, that shift to screen reading often has very interesting effects in terms of segmentation. So it was, it was pointed out to me by a colleague that some of, for instance, Toni Morrison's novels um, do not include chapters or do not include numbered sections, right? But when you look mm. at the e-text version of some of these, they become mm. numbered chapters. Interesting. That the, the metadata of the e-text says, no, that's chapter one, that's chapter two, that's chapter three. That's, that's not in the print version, right? And wow. clearly it was not yeah. Morrison's intent, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. there they are. And it is something about the continual return with every new media shift of a mode of segmentation that's actually really, really old. Mm-hmm. That's that's so that's so so fascinating. Maybe 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 we'll we'll get to that. So let's let's talk about I guess the novel. Um, and you start basically in the 17th century. Um, there's a bunch of things to discuss in the 17th century. I guess one thing real quick is what was the impact of biblical divisions on the 18th century novel, and then but tell us about Locke's anti-chapter theory. I thought this was super interesting in part of the book. Talk to us about about that bit. Yeah, Locke, uh, so John Locke has a, a, you know, in in the sort of bibliographical circles, it's a kind of notorious essay um, that was a preface to uh, this project of his in which he was attempting to paraphrase all of the Christian epistles. Mm -hmm. But in this preface, he says, look, we have this problem that Bibles are, as he calls it, um, you know, chopped up that when we receive them, they're chopped up into chapters and also in, not incidentally into verses by that point, right? And the mm-hmm. verse numeration is a much later development. That's a, that's a 16th century development. But it says, look, they come really chopped up. There are all these divisions and numbers and those things weren't in the original text. And, and he points out, as, as I said earlier, often they're quite bad. They're, they seem pointless. They're, uh, they're confusing. And then he adds some other elements. He says, look, that what scripture should produce is a sense of spiritual coherence. And coherence is not going to occur when you're running up against these divisions that you think are meaningful, but in fact are purely accidental or or arbitrary. Um, So that's one problem. The second is that when you chop the text up, you give ammunition to what he thinks of as sectarian reading. Hmm. Um, So someone, you know, this battle of sectarian citation where you start to say something like, well, in, you know, in Matthew 6, this happens and that proves my point and someone else comes at you with, you know, Luke 22. And he says, no, 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 no. That bitty citational mode of reading is twisted. And what we should be looking for is the coherence of continuing thread. Mm-hmm. So, and this is where he runs up against a wall. He's ideally, these things should disappear. Mm-hmm. But, too late. There's nothing to be done about it. I just want to highlight for you that this problem <laughs> exists and that to, much, to the extent that as possible, read like bracketed in your brain 
don't pay attention to these things, right? Don't pay attention to the start of a new chapter, to the division into verses. Try hard not to have those things. That pointing out the gap between um, the sacred quality of the of continual coherence and the very human aspect of needing it chopped up is something that I think takes an unexpected direction because novelists become very aware of chapters as bizarre human inventions, but they treat it in a very different spirit than Locke does rather than attempting mm -hmm. to sort of, you know, if not eliminate them in practice, at least try to not think about them to, th to say something like, well, what if that could be used as an aesthetic effect? Right. What if you could what if you embraced it rather mm -hmm. than attempted to discard it? Mm -hmm. Then you have a kind of interesting an interesting tool to work with, almost like a kind of toy you can work with, or you can use it for almost any number of purposes you want. And so the lock opens a door for the mm -hmm. chapter as an aesthetic form, I think, through pointing out through insisting on how damaging it is, how bad it is, he, he actually promotes it in some perverse way. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to be what happens in 18th century novels. Anybody who's read it in multiple languages, but particularly in the English tradition, 18th century novels are very chatty about their own chapters. They, and, very, and often where humor accumulates, right? In the titles, in the ways they're introduced, in the self-consciousness with which narrators will talk about the fact that a chapter is about to end or breaking off at a certain moment. That self-consciousness is, I think, created by this controversy uh, you know, in the 17th and 18th centuries about biblical chapters and their inutility and their arbitrariness. Hmm. It's fascinating how his kind of, you know, um, wanting to see things less about it's in a biblical sense of you know more contextual gives a kind of spirit of okay well now we have this like different idea yeah. of how uh how chapters should should, should go about yeah. you you mentioned um jane austen i'm i'm a big fan yeah i like jane austen <laughs> jane austen like many people around right, the world right. jane austen's pretty cool um and you, you tell us about the kind of evolution of the chapter in 18th century novels uh of rhythm and time and this interesting triple-digit word count chapter, uh, which I thought was, mm -hmm. was peculiar. Tell, tell us about that and what the significance of that was, particularly in Austin, but maybe for, for 18th century novels generally. Yeah, it's um, take, let's say, I mean, the, the first chapter of Pride and Prejudice is, mm -hmm. in most modern editions, two and a half pages. Right, I think it, it clocks in at about 500 that's, words or something, right. more or less. Depends, I guess, on the font yeah, yeah, type yeah. and the yeah. length right. of the page, but right. somewhere around. Something like that. Yeah. Yep. Um, when you get to her late novels, um, that vanishes. So, you know, I, I do a little bit of counting and Austin published six novels in the end. Um, not all of them published in her lifetime. Three of them were at least a draft was written when she was a very young woman at the end mm -hmm. of the 18th century. And in those, the chapter values are quite small and quite recognizably 18th century ones that the, the, the average is about 2000 words per chapter, a little bit under. In some cases, right? Sense and Sensibility, Pride, Pride and Prejudice, and, prejudice. Emma? Uh, and uh, Sense and Sensibility, Romance Pride and Prejudice, and um, uh, Northanger Abbey. Aha, uh -huh. yeah, 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 yeah. Then there's a gap of some, some years in her life, and it's in the last 
really eight years of her life where she writes three novels that didn't have an original draft, um, mm. uh, Emma, Mansfield Park, and Persuasion. Persuasion. In those novels, the chapter lengths are much larger, and they're pressing mm -hmm. upward at the end to something mm -hmm. like 3,500. Okay, that's an abstract figure, but I think it has an experiential aspect to it. Mm. Suddenly now, um, what, you know, why is it chapters get longer? And it's analogous, you could say, between the, the gradual expansion, much more gradual expansion of the biblical chapter, right? The things get bigger and bigger and bigger. Why does that occur? And it, it, it's very much in line with what you see with other novelists in those two moments, right? It's just the interesting thing about Austen's life is she does span two different mm -hmm. moments, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's a general phenomenon of, of her lifetime that chapters slow down, I guess you could say. The chapter has become more, a little more infrequent over time. What is that about? And my argument there is that it seems to be a response to the way in which increasingly her characters are start thinking more and more about the periods of their own life, about the way in which they divide up their own lives biographically, the way they become more and more attuned to thinking about the beginnings and endings of experiences. And as they do so, the chapter gets bigger and bigger and bigger, almost mm -hmm. to start to mimic their own thinking about phases of their life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's one of the drivers of this expansion effect that is, mm -hmm. that is increasingly happening. You don't see a lot of thinking in Pride and Prejudice about this was a period of my life, this period is moving. Yeah. But you do in the later novels. And mm -hmm. there's a strange coexistence there between that fact of the story and then the expansion of the chapter size. Yeah, I'm thinking about Emma in particular. Uh, it's been a while since I read <laughs> Persuasion. Um, but definitely in Emma, I mean, I think Emma's the longest, right? It's about 500 pages for is. most editions. Uh, I mean, it's, it's long. Mansfield Park might be just as long. But Maybe yeah, it is. Yeah, but um, yeah. 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 But both of those, thinking about it that way, definitely resonate yeah. for sure about these kind of epochs of life or these periods of life of, of these experiences, yeah. um, which, is, which is interesting, especially kind of you're saying she's kind of in two different kind she, of, uh, time periods. Yeah. And you can yep. see that, um, you know, Mansfield Park is probably my favorite, but I mean, you're, you're, uh, you're not. You're not alone in that, but there are not many people that agree. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, it's it's the darker. Yeah, one. It is. It is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Pride and Prejudice is, I mean, I think her best, and I think it's one of the best books written uh, or best novels written. I should say. Um, that is interesting to see this. Mm, what you can do with a chapter. Right. What you can do with what I can put in, what I cannot put in it. You know what what stretching that kind of yeah. limits and those kind of uh, boundaries. Yeah. You know, obviously somebody that definitely knows about uh, page limit is Tolstoy. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah. So I yeah. love Tolstoy. Yeah. Uh, I love Dostoevsky. Yeah. Uh, they definitely had a lot to say and I love that. Um, War and Peace, I, I reread War and Peace during the pandemic. Um you know felt appropriate right i need this big long yeah <laughs> that's a, right while right, i'm at home right <laughs> and um you, you talk about it as a role of telling episodes right of, of breaking a long story into episodes yep. and it is very organized which for me is great because it's like okay 
I read all of part one this week or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Um, and then there's, you know, there's parts, there's chapters, there's like sub chapters within a chapter or whatever it is. Um, at least in the edition, I think that, uh, the English translation I have. Is that, that has to be, I forget the time. It took him five years to write War and Peace. Is this right? I think this is right. Roughly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, there were also a revised edition of it later too. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, he, I forget the time frame of what happens in War and Peace, but was that something I think intentional on his part of I'm going to organize it this way or I'm going to try to, to, to when I'm, I'm going to tell this big story with all of these characters over all this time, I have to write it in episodes. Mm-hmm. If I just write it continuous, it's just going to be too much. Mm-hmm. Is, mm-hmm. Do you think that that's it's an, groundbreaking for what he's doing and intentional for what he's doing? I think what's groundbreaking is the... Um, for lack of a better word, the spirit in which he does it. So my reading of War and Peace and the fact that it is so elaborately subdivided is that uh, within the story, these characters of his, in much the same way as as in Austin, but even more self-consciously, are obsessed with the questions of beginnings and endings of experiences. Or transitions. They're really obsessed with transitions. They're, it's a continual question. Um, what, how, where was the moment in which something passed into something else? How did that mm. happen? Right. Mm. Um, you know, where is, the, where is the moment when something pivots? And now that is something he's very interested in psychologically. And he understands as a, a really ineradicable aspect of our way of parsing our own pasts as we compulsively do it by trying to divide them in some ways. And yet, programmatically, or I guess you'd say ontologically, Tolstoy doesn't believe they exist. He does not think that there exist things such as transition points. And he thinks that both in terms of individual pasts, but also in terms of collective pasts. So the parts of War and Peace that most people kind of get impatient with, these essayistic theories of, of, of particularly of the uh, French invasion, he will continually say, well, this is the moment, this battle was the moment often treated as a kind of turning point. Don't believe it. It wasn't a turning point. This, w- this would have happened anyway that was long in preparation. And in fact, there are no such things as turning points. He points out you know, that he's very interested in that paradox of Achilles and the tortoise, right? The, one of Zeno's paradoxes. What he gets out of that paradox is that uh, when you attempt to think about time or movement in time through discrete phases, you run into trouble, right? Because that's the meaning of the Achilles and the tortoise paradox. If you think in discrete phases, Achilles will never catch up to the tortoise. Mm-hmm. So therefore, discrete phases don't exist. And he then goes off and he says, well, actually, we've solved this paradox because we now have the infinitesimal calculus, which is a way of handling time and movement that doesn't depend upon discrete phases. So for him... Anything that's a period in time doesn't exist as, a, as an actual meaningful entity, but we sure as hell want there to be. And they really do have a lot of validity in terms of our way of thinking if they have no actual ontological validity. So this is a real push-pull for him. And the chapter is the, is the bizarre form in which he negotiates that gap, right? Because 
when you look at his chapters, they are actually, they don't respond to the ways in which characters think turning points occur. It's almost like he throws chapters in there as a way to show the, the meaninglessness of what we, of transition, you know, but also as a way to reflect our sort of human desire to locate transitions. It's a, it's a very uh, riven experience, right? Uh, and I think that's, that's fairly unique, how explicit he is about it, how conscious he is of it, and how it opens up this gap between the story world, where everyone is constantly trying to assess the question of pivot points, and the world, the sort of ontological level of the author, you could say, where none of that has any validity, and he's constantly pointing out, don't believe it for a second. It's, you know, mm. These things are purely imaginary, these, these questions of turning points or phases. It's very, it's, it's deeply fascinating because I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have got any of that. For now, I want to go back and read War, War and Peace again. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. right. Also, talk about this. You mentioned the book. This idea of disjuncture and implicit quarrel, quarrel between narrative and genre in his novels. So we've been talking about War and Peace. Maybe you can talk about um, how we see that in Anna Karenina, which is, I mean, it's a, I, I also reread that as well. Yeah. <laughs> and, there, and it's it's so amazing. It's a, I haven't read it in so many years, and it's fantastic. Um, mostly for, I mean, for me, the psychological aspects of it are tremendous. But yeah. how do you talk about that disjuncture and, and implicit quarrel? I mean, I think that the you, you can see this both in terms of genre and in terms of the question of how time is organized, but that his, his characters want, this is going to sound odd to say, of of novel characters, but I think it's part of what makes Tolstoy's characters so alive, actually. I mean, they have a, they have a real heft to them in some way, is that... I feel, I feel like I know that, like, that person exists and yeah. I'm hearing about their yeah. story. Like, it does feel very alive, yeah. even 160 years or whatever it is yeah. later. Yeah, no, it really does. And I think one way in which that works is that these are people who really want to live in stories. Um, Anna does, uh, certainly Lyovin does, um, you know, in, in various ways, all the major characters in War and Peace do. And the, but the bizarre function of the narration is to continually be deflating that desire to show how it's a futile one, right? The ways in which they, the genres in which they think their lives exist, the temporal map they have their lives where they think, well, now I'm starting something new or this was the phase I'm in, this is now the phase I'm in. The author is continually puncturing that and showing them to be mistaken. There's a sense that they're bumping up against the limits of those genres in which they want to live. And I, I, I often joke with Tolstoy, like that idea of bumping into something um, is often, I mean, it's a literal way in which his characters have reality. The, the, Tolstoy's characters are known, it's kind of a tick of theirs, they're clumsy right they they bump into things they you know there's a sense particularly uh, this is true of the van it's it's uh you know it's true of many characters in, in war and peace they walk into a room it's almost like they're gonna they're gonna by mistake knock something off a table they're boisterous but but that sense of bumping into limits mm. actually produces a sense of their their three-dimensionality mm. um but it is a, it is a quarrel you could say, between the character's desires to, to exist in a certain genre and what the narrator insists, which is that that is, uh, in fact, the, all those desires are, are bound to be false or falsified. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That, that, 
again, it, it gives this kind of aliveness though to things. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I like that yeah. character-wise, but then yeah. also how how the the narrative is going. Yeah. Um. So I mean, obviously, we got to talk about Dickens, <laughs> right? I mean, the Dickens novel. Sure. I mean, is is sure. tremendous. Yeah. Um. Here, in terms of what you're using from Dickens to to illustrate, is this way in which, um, daily time to structure a narrative is used, and so chapters almost very on the nose are used for uh, a marker of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is it is that? I wouldn't say the first time we see it, but is it kind of the most um, popularized or the the way in which it's it's very observable? in a novel for, for in many of Dickens novels of chapter as a marker yeah. of time. It's so the, uh, it's not the first time we see it, but it's the first time in a long time we've seen it. So this is where mm. the discussion of the Bible comes back, right? The way in which um, the, the modern, you know, 800 year old chaptering system of let's say the gospels does often use chapters, sculpt them around a single day's action that returns mm. in Victorian fiction. With a different, with a difference, though, right? And the difference is that it is very much the case that, and Dickens is a particularly vivid example of this, but it's all throughout British fiction in the nineteenth century. A chapter more or less either starts in the morning or ends in the evening. It's very responsive to diurnal time, and more ending in the evening. Actually, it's a very important moment for Dickens. The ends of a chapter is often his characters retiring to sleep. And as they retire to sleep, they're thinking over what has happened to them that day and sort of mulling it over. But in that way you do before sleep, where you're sort of letting it soften a bit. Now, there's a lot to say about that, but I think the thing that I'm maybe most interested in, or maybe most obvious about this, is, well, that's a direct attempt to synchronize with a reader's experience because of the you know, the increasingly prevalent fact, particularly in industrial modernity, that that is the moment novel reading happens, right? Is mm. in bed at night. Uh, the mm. day's tasks are over. You have a brief amount of time in which to read. So there's a, there's a direct synchronization that is occurring there. Mm. And it's almost a way of telling you this is how to take this thing in in the same way at the same time of day as the protagonist is, right? Could you could you give the example here? Because you talk about it with Middlemarch. Maybe, yes, which is it, it happens in Middlemarch book. too. Yeah. Um, it's a little different in Middlemarch, if only because Elliot does something interesting to it, which is that mm -hmm. uh, in the first, it's a it's an eight volume. It comes in eight parts, I guess you could say. Yeah. In the first two or three, there's very much that Dickensian lining up of a chapter and a day are very very closely matched. Mm. In the middle sections, it gets thrown off. Like that rhythm mm -hmm. goes away chapters become more temporally incoherent. A lot of things happen in chapters, or sometimes the reverse, where a day will take multiple chapters to narrate. And in fact, as the emergencies of the plot get ratcheted up, you almost, it's interesting the way this is. It's almost, I wouldn't say clumsy, but it's, it's interestingly obvious. More and more action happens in the middle of the night, right? Like there, mm -hmm. there are characters that don't sleep, that are up all, you know, so there's a temporal disjuncture that happens in the middle, and then she restores the balance at the end. We go back in the last couple of volumes, particularly in the last one, to a chapter is a day's time. And you get the feeling that she's aware of this rhythm, 
and she, you know, in the, in the same way that a composer will, right? She throws it off only in order to produce the satisfaction of restoring it at the end. Um, that, but that's the keynote often in Victorian fiction is that a chapter is a day's amount of time. And then the question becomes, I mean, that's a literal way of making narrative responsible to and responsive to everydayness. But it also poses the question like, well, what is a day? What can happen in a day? Um, what kind of a unit is a day when we think about how our life is led? And that is, that's the kind of experiential register that, that the novel's very interested in at that moment in, in historical time. Well, and then it, there's, a, there's an interesting parallel there, right? Because the chapter is having a certain sense of time, the chapter time you talked about before, but it's also kind of bracketing a daytime that we have. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A sense yeah. of 24 yeah, hours yeah, in a day, yeah, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So there's yeah. a bunch of things going on there of like, oh, so, and how much, you know, how much do you put in? How much do you leave out? You know, all of these things yeah. that can happen in a day, which is, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, it's a very interesting kind of way of, of, of using yeah. that. Yeah. So you move more uh, current um, and you talk about, uh, is it Machado? Yes. Right? Uh, yeah, Machado de Asis. Yeah. 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 The, the betweenness. Is that, is that, is that for tension? Is that for rest? What mm. is this? Talk about the betweenness there. So Machado de Assis, you know, a, a late 19th century Brazilian uh, writer, um, does something that's deliberately out of step with, uh, I mean, really deliberately out of step with where other novelists are, which is that um, he goes back in time. I mean, he, and he admits as such in some of his prefaces, so that uh, a sh relatively short novel of his, um, Let's give the example of his most famous one, the posthumous memoirs of Bras Cubas, um, has something like a couple hundred chapters. Uh, usually not, well, often like one page is a chapter, right? Mm. So why was one question. I mean, you know, that, other than that, it really enforces your attention. I teach that novel to students, and that's mm. often the first question they ask, and they never otherwise ask about chapters. But they will ask why. What's he doing here? What is, you know, or sometimes complain about it, right? Because their rhythm is thrown off. Um, I think there's a kind of ambiguity to that gesture. It is both observing a rule, saying, look, I'm not going to bore you. I'm not going to dwell too long on any one subject. I'm going to move in and out of things quickly. But at the same time that it's observing a kind of rule, it's also a sort of hostile, almost violent, gesture saying like you're not going to get comfortable for too long in this right <laughs> so you know to use a pop psychological term there's something passive aggressive about it it mm -hmm. it's um you feel like you're being treated with elaborate respect but in a way that makes you uncomfortable and where mm -hmm. you sense that there's something behind the respect you're being treated with you're being wrong-footed continually that is there are different ways to read that one would be socially it's a reflection of the social milieu Machado lived in, right, and, and wrote about often, which is the kind of upper bourgeoisie in a society that was still a slave-owning society. Yeah. Um, it is also a way of describing lives that can't find the right temporal rhythm to exist in any longer. Anything larger than a moment feels hard to grasp feels like it's not something that has any reality. And so they, they have really struggled to connect across different moments. 
the result is this odd thing where that where experience really happens in Machado's novels is not in the chapters, but between them in this perverse way where it's the gap between chapters where so much occurs, but it, the gap is also just white space. It's also just a blank. Um, that's a, that's a real revisionary use of what chapters could mean, but it's a funny one because it's a revisionary use that goes back in time to justify itself. Because he'll he'll say, "Look, I'm only doing what 18th century novelists did. This is very common. Don't you know? I I know what I'm doing. It has precedent." Um, and again, in Machado, it's that mixture of politeness and formality with something that feels highly aggressive and almost personal. You mentioned with with uh, this work, and I think. Um, maybe with others, the the antique uh, antique diminutive dimin- diminutive yeah, model, which yeah, has yeah. you know this conspic- uh, conspicuousness, of brevity, and antique binarism. Yeah. Uh, and there's these different moments. There's a really cool diagram uh, there in the book uh, about how you explain this. Could you talk about just a little bit? You don't have to do a deep dive, sure. but just generally how how this works as a as a model. And understanding contextually how chapters can be used in different ways. Yeah, I, one way to put this model, and it, it, you know, it's it's a what I call the antique diminutive model, is an is an option for some writers um, from Machado onward. So primarily, it's like a twentieth century option. Mm. It's by no means a majority option, but some take it, and it's a response to a certain kind of pressure that happens in the twentieth century, which is the pressure to get rid of the chapter as as it had been known. Right, that it's it's purely conventional. Um, the critic James Wood has a great phrase for this. He, he, he thinks of chapters along with some other devices as what he calls like corsets, right? Mm. That totally uh, uh, strange, arbitrary things that, you know, it'd be really freeing to get rid of. It would be freeing to, to not have those restrictions anymore. Now, that can happen in two ways. The one sort of majority option, right, is to dispense with them entirely. Just get rid of them. Um, and there are many famous examples of this, really super canonical examples of this. You know, Marcel Proust or Samuel Beckett or, you know, mm. um, all the way to Knausgaard, as you mentioned. Mm. The other would be to accelerate them, right? To, to, to take this antique diminutive mode, to have a kind of hyper acceleration of the chapter. You have more and more of them. They break more and more often. Um, and they become very, very self-conscious. That is, that they, because they're so obvious, because they're so strange, they force you to continually notice them, and you're forced to take them in as more or less arbitrary divisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can embrace the arbitrariness by, uh, by accelerating them, or you can get rid of them entirely. But it becomes very hard in the 20th century, at least in fiction that has some sort of pretension to be high fiction. It becomes very hard to do them in the kind of ordinary way anymore. That becomes more the option of like genre fiction, fiction for young people. That's where that becomes relegated. It's like a status collapse of chaptering that happens in the 20th century. Um, But you can keep them if you make them weird. And one way to make them weird is to make them old-fashioned and small. Right, and that I think is an option that Machado does sort of innovate for others. Mm. It's, it's very interesting because it, it's definitely not my style. It's not something that I really kind of pull for, but it's interesting when I was reading that that chapter of 
you have the the kind of you know chapter being instantiated within certain books or novels, but then you have all these different ways of using the chapter yeah. and using it for particular reasons. You see a lot of that again, as you said, with with Tolstoy. Yeah. Um, but then you can also see it um, with different uh, folks, you know, afterwards. Yeah. Um, and of course, you talk about uh, Varda, yes. uh, Cleo from five to seven, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is a fantastic film. It's a, for listeners, it's a film. If if you haven't seen it, it's it's, uh, it's wonderful. And as the first chapter film, um, and I didn't know if it was kind of the the first or maybe the first that was most uh, noticed, but so many people well not so many i shouldn't say that but a lot of people do chapters in their films right. i mean right. i think tarantino has done this right. and barry linden yep. which was amazing yep. from kubrick um uh there was i even saw traces of it in oppenheimer uh yeah, as well yeah. there's a recent uh, one a little bit a um, little bit uh, joachim trier's uh the worst person in the world um yes chapters. yes yeah. yes that was a great yeah. film yep. anyways there's a bunch there's a bunch that will do uh, I think Lars von Trier does mm-hmm. this as well. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty of of of, uh, of filmmakers that will do uh, chapters, right. uh, literal chapters. Um, and so, what was the kind of groundbreaking moment for 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 this film? And we can maybe dovetail into that about ideas of scenes and chapters yeah. or you know adaptation as, as well yeah. how, how does that kind of work when you get it onto a pure visual medium such as such right. as film so um one thing sort of one thing in general before i get to Varda in specific is that um what one of the things chapters do tend to do in films is they advertise the bookishness of the film so mm. that um often Films and chapters, I mean, it's often the case that they're adaptations of novels, right? And they signal yep. that adaptation quality by maintaining the chapter form. Often in the terms of title cards, you know, something like the Merchant Ivory version of A Room with a View maintains mm. actually Forster's chapter titles through mm. the title cards. Mm. So that it, 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 it sort of affiliates the film with a different medium. Mm. But what Varda does is a little different. What she picks up about the chapter form is something we've, we've already talked about, is the way it synchronizes readers' time with mm-hmm. the time of the story. But what changes about that synchronization when you move to film or novel is that it becomes very, very literal in a fascinating mm-hmm. way, right? So, um, you know, for those who haven't seen Varda's film, I, I just explained from it, like, how it works. It's... Um, it is the story of one woman's life from five o'clock to six to six thirty on June twenty-first. Uh, I believe it's set in nineteen sixty-two. I might have the year off, but Some, that's it's an hour and a half of a, of a woman's time told without cuts. So you live that hour and a half sequentially. It is not just told without cuts, but Varda was very, there are cuts, but um, there's no, uh, there's no jumping ahead in sequence, right? It is linear time for an hour and a half. The film is an hour and a half long. It's filmed, interestingly, Varda filmed it in the order of the events in the story, right? She didn't even film it out of order. And she filmed it at the exact time of day, at the exact time of year. So all the filming happened between 5 and 6.30 in late June. Because, you know, it would have seemed to her the commitment to realism was the light should mm-hmm. look the way the light looks mm-hmm. on the longest day of the year in the mid-afternoon, right? I didn't know that. So, um, 
but that means that your experience of time, your hour and a half, precisely matches the hour and a half of the characters. There's an exact match between reader or viewer time and uh, diegetic time or story time. But it's divided into, I believe, um, 14 units if you count a, a sort of preface moment. Mm. And the chapters come not as cards where there's a cut, but what will happen is that there'll be a movement. Either, you know, sometimes Cleo walks into a restaurant, sometimes a door is open to let somebody in her, into her apartment. And as that moment happens, there's a superimposed uh, card that says, mm. you know, something like chapter seven from, uh, let's say, 537 to 542. Mm -hmm. right? And that awareness of the time that the chapter frame gives you you're never allowed to forget for very long the sort of ticking of the clock and it's mm. it's not just the chapter title cards there are always sort of clocks in the background right you're always your attention is always being pointed to the time of day but mm. um that alignment becomes interestingly somewhat sinister so the mm. main character Clea, what she's going through between 5 and 6 30 is that she's waiting for the results of a, a cancer diagnosis test and, and she's increasingly convinced as we get closer to 6.30 that she's going to find out that she doesn't have cancer, which no, I don't think it's a spoiler. At the end of the film, she's told she does, right? Mm. Um, that inability to forget time and the passing of time in your experience of the film, at the same, mm. and, and that that experience is the same as hers, is a, besides a kind of fascinating experiment, um, does give you that sense of every time period as, as an experience of trying to trying to hold off the end as long as possible right trying to mm -hmm. you know it becomes a really visceral experience in that film of trying to trying to see if you can prolong mm -hmm. the, until the next thing as long as you can mm -hmm. um so i think that's the i mean that's the the truly striking but also kind of obvious thing about Varda's film is that it shows you how in, in film that synchronization between reader and protagonist can happen in, in a very, very visceral, minute way. In the novel, it's more suggestive, but in a film, it can be very, very literal. And, but she gets that device of synchronization from fiction, which is why she calls them chapters, right? Mm. Yeah, it's it's when I read in the book, I, I haven't seen the film for a while. It made me want to go back and, and uh, rewatch it. But it is something about, I think you, you, you said something about this kind of sinister element, especially there's a, there's a, there's a kind of tension. There's a kind of like uh, pressure of sorts, but I think it's used well yeah. in understanding this idea of time. And you can see that in, in some novels too. Not, none come to mind at the moment, but you can see some of these things where, um, this idea of time, or are they going to be able to get to, to, to something or, or what, what's the anticipation that's built behind it? So it's, yeah. it's interesting how you can use this idea of, of chapters or chapter time uh, across, across mediums. Right. It doesn't, I mean, it is, it, it still carries a trace of its bookishness, right? I mean, it yeah. still feels yeah. like its reference is, is a book, but mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be confined to a book at all right mm -hmm. and and it, and it can take on very different effects when it's in a different medium mm. yeah so you've talked about it i guess a little bit so my, my my kind of final question here is you know in our 
postmodern period, or I don't know, I, I, think, I think we're still in our postmodern <laughs> period. Um, I don't know, maybe we're in another period that hasn't been yet named, but at our current age, I'll put it that way. Um, what does the chapter do? How does, what is it you, what is the use for us, uh, for the chapter now in the books that we, we write and we read and the novels and, and how does it continue to, to survive, uh, if it should survive? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people would say that it shouldn't survive. I mean, and I, mm-hmm. I, there's a, a growing consensus. And I mentioned some people who hold this opinion that chapters are old fashioned survivals of a, a different kinds of narratives than we now have different ways of thinking about life and and you know it usually takes the form of this claim that well life isn't that life doesn't come in chapters right it's that they don't exist in our perception of life and so why should we tell stories through them so two things i think are important about that one of that is that is sort of a consensus and it does mean that culturally speaking chaptered texts have a kind of low status now I mean, therefore, um, earlier readers or more remedial readers, as you emerge into more sophisticated forms of reading, you're supposed to lose touch with those things and, and uh, mm-hmm. embrace embrace a, a, a unsegmented experience. That, you know, uh, that means something now that chapters are associated with primarily with youth or the remedial. But I also do want to make the argument that I don't think that's actually true <laughs> that um when we say we don't live in chapters or chapters don't exist really actually they do i, I i'm here i'm making a kind of version of the tolstoyan or one side of the tolstoyan behind it is impossible for us to live without segmenting our experience um i mean this is a i mean this both in a more broadly philosophical way but even in in a, a, a almost physiological way. We know from cognitive science research that, in fact, segmenting is the way we store memories, yeah. is the way our perception works. Mm-hmm. So I don't even think it's true to say that life doesn't come segmented. It really, really does. It's the only way we make sense of time as it passes. Um, so its survival, I think, is actually, in some sense, guaranteed, if only because the apparatus of human cognition depends upon some forms of segmentation. but. The other two things I'd say about this is that the chapter will survive because it's a way of reflecting on mediation. It's a way of reflecting on the fact that the ways in which our narratives come mediated. So some of the more interesting chaptered texts that I want to talk about at the end of my book are also texts that are interested in media, right? So Jennifer Egan's a visit from the Goon Squad is really interested in uh, what happens in the wake of the gradual disappearance of the of the record album, right, of vinyl, um, and are experiencing life primarily through this, you know, the segmentation of songs in an LP. Um, the other, you know, ways of thinking about how chapters can happen in, in a multimedia frame. So the uh, Leslo Kresno Horkai novel I talk about at the end, which is a chaptered text, but which each chapter starts with a QR code. Mm. And you use your phone, right, to access mm-hmm. through the QR code a song track that you can play while reading that chapter, mm. which means that chapters are a way to, to allow mediation and multimediation to occur in text, mm. to allow that 
to, to happen because chapters are always themselves a form of mediation, as they always have been from the start, when mm-hmm. they're always, you know, from the earliest texts we have, later attempts to sculpt a pre-existing text into a particular medium. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then finally, I think that there's something about the chapter's value in the way that it is malleable. It's amenable to shaping. You know, uh, we can shape chapters however we choose. There is a freedom to it, and a freedom that I don't think quite exists in the vision of time as entirely unsegmented, which means we're submitting to continuity. But what if we were to try to have some partial agency over the way we articulate time? And the chapter is a, is a sign for that. It's a sign for some not complete, but but partial agency over the way in which we organize time. Um, mm. And that, that would be, I think, a, at least a rationale for the survival of, of segmentation and narrative experience. Yeah, it's interesting because there's obviously segmented time. So even if you think about in our own lives, we have that as kind of, you know, clunking together things for our memory, but also we can always look back after the fact and say, this is a period of my, this is a chapter of my, my life. life, right? Yeah. Right, you know, yeah. of this period to this period. And there's these breaking points that do happen. We don't know that in the moment, but we know it kind of after the fact. And I, and I wonder, there's, there's something, there's something about encapsulating these kind of epochs of our life that's helpful to ground us to the, fluidity of our evolution throughout our short life on on the planet and i think we see that again you know manifested physically in 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 chapters and in books but also in other mediums and so um i do like the kind of i mean it's because i'm biased i do like tolstoy so i do like (laughs) his kind of way of it's very organized and but it is a kind of wrestling with both of those kinds of ways of there's a freedom um, but then there isn't, and I think it's interesting to yeah. to, to see it that way. I mean, Tolstoy would disagree, right? He, to some extent, he would disagree. He'd say, "Well, you, it's true. We do tend to organize our pasts through these mm-hmm. units." He would then say, "But those are false, right? Those don't really right, exist." Right, 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 right. But at the same time, he says that he's also very aware. But we need them still, right? Yeah. It's very yeah. hard to yeah. make sense of what has happened to us without that kind of mm-hmm. periodizing energy and so that's a bind it may not be quite possible to escape from yeah 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 i i, I would probably agree with that yeah. so the book is called uh the chapter a segmented history from antiquity to the 21st century uh this is out through uh princeton university press uh it's a it's a beautiful cover you can judge the book by this cover <laughs> and uh, all of the content and research and hard work inside the book is absolutely fabulous uh nicholas thanks so much uh for coming on the podcast and for talking with me for a couple hours about the chapter and the history of it i I had so much fun with this conversation it really was uh, very rewarding and i hope for listeners as well so big 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 thanks for for coming on thank you this was a blast yeah absolutely